Welcome to the Something Something Experience Podcast, Episode 20. I'm Michael John Simpson. Our guest this week is actor, writer, musician, radio and club DJ, Andrew Michael Harlander. I met Andrew at a goth club craft fair a couple years ago, if you can believe that. He was DJing and I was absolutely in awe of his song choices. We struck up a conversation and became friends. We sat down at CBS Radio Studios and talked about having deaf parents, acting, band politics, tightrope walker Philippe Petit, criminal minds, starting a creative career, radio DJing, Heath Ledger, Seattle and Portland, the evolution of alternative music, music videos, stand-up comedy, voiceover acting, finding your voice, working toward your dreams, and the recording industry. Let the children use it. It's episode 20 of the Something Something Experience. I guess we record this thing and you'll just guide me along and tell me what to say, huh? <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Um, yeah, it's pretty much just a stream of consciousness conversation. We just talk about whatever you want to talk about, really. So. It might be a stream of unconsciousness. Okay. <laughs> well, you work a lot of hours, plus you're having car trouble, so that's not an easy thing. Yeah, it's true. No, it's been an entertaining week. <laughs> um, the have last we, time we, re- we started yet? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it's, we're, oh, okay, we're okay. Hey. We're recording. We just did. We just go, <laughs> and we wind up saying this every episode. It's okay. Um, the last time you and I, well, the first time and the last time we actually met in person, um, you were DJing at a loft that was running kind of a gothy alternative kind of um arts and crafts fair show Mm -hmm. in the loft downtown and i was so amazed by some of the stuff you played that i went over and started talking to you and actually you know i have to confess i fanned out a little bit i uh i had a a bit of a dj crush on you there for a bit oh my and uh yeah it was pretty cool um because you were playing stuff that i haven't heard in a very very long time and and i was going and requesting things nobody else was i was going and requesting things and actually my wife and actually were and i were actually dancing and uh was yeah. this a was this a bar downtown it was like in a loft like a oh, it was right. almost like an upstairs in a hotel kind of lofty type spot oh, downtown right okay was and there it... were tables all around and people were selling jewelry and artwork kind and, of a dark but dark yeah. big long room yeah okay. yeah yeah with yeah. pillars everywhere ironically and you the were first... in the dead center of the room right with the dj Booth. Was there a woman standing with me? Most yeah, of the time? I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That woman standing with me was the very same woman who dropped me off to meet you <laughs> this evening because okay. my vehicle wasn't working. Right, right. right. That's hilarious. Yeah. I will tell her that, <laughs> that uh, we originally met that night because yes. that was like two, maybe three years ago. Yeah, that was a while ago. ago. Yeah, it was probably a couple yeah. years ago. Yeah. And, and we. We kind of became Facebook friends and then stayed in touch, and then I started the podcast last September, and I thought, yeah. you know, I really should get Andrew on it, because he's, he's, he's a guy who likes music, he's a DJ, he's a working, working DJ, working kind of uh, production engineer, working uh, actor, working, 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 working person in all Wor- facets of... Yes, working, and yet, ironically, I need to find a real job, because <laughs> I need to get a place to live. Sort of. No, I've got to play. Yeah, there you go. But um, I mean, you've done you've done a lot of a lot of stuff, and you go back and look at your like IMDb and your old Facebook, and and there's been a lot of chatter with you and friends about about your <laughs> appearance on uh, on uh, uh, Criminal Minds. Criminal Minds as yeah, as the so- serial killer. That's a great photo, and I really want to put that. On the uh, on the pot on the uh, the blog. <laughs> now, uh, amongst the many things in the pre- previous year, I've been uh, making short films as a director slash producer slash actor uh, with uh, same said uh, person Marissa Crisofoli, who uh, uh, dropped me off partly because uh, we had gotten together today because I also help 
teach actors or coach them on auditions. Yeah, cool. I mean, this is a long and varied journey that, that began <laughs> with uh, me being born to deaf parents. <laughs> well, all right. All right. Yeah. Uh, born so you in- probably don't 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 complain a lot because you're used to being ignored. <laughs> well, there there is that. No, I, it, well, actually, you know, being an, a hearing child of deaf parents, um, uh, there are certain behavioral tics that you know somebody from you know whose parents belong to another culture would generally have. Sure. For hearing children of deaf parents, there's, I mean, plainly the fact that half the time you're making phone calls for your parents or doing other things that your parents would normally do for themselves. Sure. Um, and especially since I was born in 65 and and my mother wore in a hearing aid, but my dad did not. I mean, mm-hmm. they were both functional people. I mean, my dad worked as a, a linotypist and then working at printing presses and eventually wound up working for the U.S. Postal Service until he retired. My mother worked uh, like as an, uh, a data entry person in insurance from the time she was like 19. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, my mother had a hearing aid that wasn't so great. So once I turned four or five years old and I went to school, I realized that she had certain speech issues. And so there I was, my mother's speech therapist at the age of five. Well, there you go. And didn't realize it didn't. It wasn't really a conscious thing for me until I started uh, studying acting coming down to Los Angeles in 2002. And uh, when our speech teacher was telling us where you put your tongue to make the duh sound... And where you put in your mouth, where you put the vowel sound, I'm like, oh, yeah, I told my mother that when I was five. Wait, I told my mother that when I was five. <laughs> you know, so uh, there there are certain So I would imagine, too. even though you had deaf parents and a lot of kids learn how to talk from their parents, you were probably learning how to talk from the TV and the radio and, exactly. and everywhere else. And that's why you have such amazing diction today. Well, ac- you know, I've always had pretty good diction, but actually the acting thing has made me really sure, good. Sure, sure. It makes you con- more conscious really of more it. Really more conscious of it, especially since I have a thing about, you know, Shakespeare and being able to actually speak words. Um, <laughs> now, for the criminal minds thing, that's a kind of a funny story because um, I had actually uh, bought a plane ticket to New York City to take a week-long uh, accent and dialect class with speech teachers. Even though I'm not a speech teacher, I was right. able to get in on it. And they usually say that you book something big when you're supposed to be somewhere else. Huh. I did this audition. I got this audition for um, Criminal Minds. And it, I'm basically a character in Flashback in right. 1985 Las Vegas. Right. Now, my radio name in the 80s in Seattle was Terry Michaels. <laughs> and I changed to Drew when I came down to California. I was DJ Drew in Seattle in the 90s doing goth industrial music mm-hmm, and everything. Mm-hmm. And Drew Harlander as as a musician with Kill Switch Click and right. some other bands in Seattle in the 90s. Um, Wait, you were in Kill Switch Click? I was. Holy I was shit, I didn't Keyboard know player. That. I did not know. I yeah. did, as Johnny Carson would say, I did not know that. <laughs> well, if you look online, the, the the best pictures of the band lineup uh, was a. a f- it, we were a five piece for about I think somewhere six months to close to a year in 1993, 93, 94. Yeah, and um, I was the keyboard player in the band, and my best friend, and and turned out to be business partner in the nineties. Uh, Anastasia Mulligan was the singer. Mm-hmm. Um. And so we were in the band, and uh, unfortunately, the drummer of said band was a guy who 
wasn't really one of us. He was a, he was a friend of of Devin, uh, the main guy in Killswitch Click, who had uh-huh. written all the music. Yeah. But his drummer was a guy who worked at Boeing. This was kind of his side thing, and you could kind of, most of us who weren't Devin, like everybody else in the band except for the drummer and Devin, kind of figured out pretty quickly that the drummer didn't really want this thing to go very far. And any time Devin got people on board that might take him in another direction, this guy would basically kind of fuck with people. Oh, wow. Get them to leave the band. <laughs> which is essentially what happened. Oh, my God. He no drove idea. all the good people out you of the band. You have no idea how many, how many band stories. I've had a lot of friends over the years who have been in a lot of bands, and how many stories I've heard of. This one guy kept trying to drive people out of the band. I've yeah. I've heard that it's over like, and over and over and over. And it was kind of tragic because I thought, you know, I, I came up with, with these keyboard parts uh, for Devin that I thought were pretty killer yeah uh and didn't stick around long enough to be able to record the album and sadly the the initial album i think by everybody's estimation including devon's it wasn't very well recorded i mean he uh he did it for cleopatra records which sure, uh, cleopatra sure. was you know they'd release you know they'd release al-qaeda suspects Should they would they, yeah they would release the opening of an envelope um yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. but but you gotta admit though cleopatra it really did perfect one thing goth and industrial compilations they put together some of the best comps absolutely and then there were other bands who actually went on to be like uh, a lot of local goth bands from from cities went on to be more national or more international if they got a deal through cleopatra like um uh seraphim shock buddies of mine from denver and they've gone on and they're still touring they're still around that's great yeah um so criminal minds i booked this thing and my character name is Gary Michaels. <laughs> my air name was Terry Michaels in 1985. I'm like, you know what? This is my role. <laughs> and so I went in, got the thing, and it turned out I had to switch my date uh, to go to New York because uh, even though we were shooting the scene after I got back from New York, the table read, which, you know, for for our listeners who are actors, you know that if you get booked for something, the table read is very important. Yeah, very important. Because you sh- if you don't show up, you're, they you, might fire you and replace you. They're fire you immediately, yeah. If you do show up and you fuck it up, they'll fire you and replace you. So, um, lucky for me, I didn't have too many lines, and my lines are all fairly creepy. Yeah. I was basically playing a child molester. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, the advantage was that, A, I was dressed the part, and, <laughs> and and actually, for my audition... Were those your sun, your glasses, your aviators? <laughs> oh, he's digging no, them out. But, oh. but, no, but... Um, so here's the thing. Because I knew that it took place in the 80s, yeah. and it was supposed to be a creepy guy talking to a five-year-old, Sure, sure. I did my best. I dressed up in my best John Hinckley Jr. Of course, yes. Including yes. these glasses. Nice, there you go. Now, these there aren't you... the, these are the glasses that booked me the part. These are not the glasses that I wore in the episode. Nice. But they're, they're bifocals. They've got gold rims. And I've used these repeatedly to play the... They the... look like something my stepdad wore back in 1978. Exactly. Well, that's... And uh, I actually, this last year, had an audition for um, uh, The Walk, which is going to be the new Zemeckis film that comes out later oh, okay. this year. okay. Uh, about uh, uh, the French show Wirewalker who walked between the Twin Towers. Oh, yeah. I've heard a lot of talk about that story. Right. Not necessarily. Well, the, the movie. documentary. The documentary right. won won some awards. Right, and uh, I've been I've been Man hearing so much about that yeah. lately. Well, and and the French guy was working with Zemeckis from the early two thousands to put this thing together, and it finally happened. Um, and so I went and auditioned for one of the two uh, American 
jazz musicians who helped them in their last day and a half to get it done. Right. Um, and one of the two guys was sort of a, you know, sort of a, a slacker stoner, and the other guy was kind of a, a you know, a cynic and a pessimist. And really, the, the French folks who had put this thing together weren't even sure that he was on their side. But it turned out they needed him to be that way because he was going to make sure it was going to get done. Sure. And it, as it turned out, um, uh, the casting director and the director was having the two uh, the actors playing the two American coming into pl- to audition for the two American jazz players to uh, improvise some of their dialogue because mm-hmm. they were going to be changing it around and adding a little more humor. And I figured out pretty pretty quickly that what they really needed were funny lines from these two you know pot smoking jazz musicians. <laughs> um, so. As is often the case, yes. I would not be surprised if one of my improvised lines winds up in the film instead of me. <laughs> but the thing is, you know, on a film like that, especially when you've got a documentary and you know what people look like, I am not a six foot two Jewish guy with curly dark hair. No. But I was able to put together a look, a very 70s look with a mustache that blew everybody in the office away. All right. It works. And then making them laugh. Make it work. Yeah, make them laugh. Make them uh-huh. laugh. Yes. Yeah. So, um,. And so you were mentioning Criminal Minds. Sure. And that, you know, so usually you work a show. And my role is basically a small role. It's basically two lines. Um, and then you show me outside my house walking around. And then you show me inside my house dead. Right. Um, and I worked with Jane Lynch that day inside the house. Fun. That was the year before she got Glee. And I didn't know her because I never watched any of the Christopher Guest films that she was in. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I just thought she was kind of cool. Yeah. And she was kind of cool. Um, but so I did my thing and it aired and it was great. Um, but, you know, Criminal Minds is one of those shows that plays on A&E every time they do you know, like a, a marathon weekend. Sure, sure. It's usually at least once a month. Right. And I know this probably since Jane Lynch plays the mother of the brainy guy on Criminal Minds. Right, right. Um, they uh, show uh, that... Vincent D'Onofrio's character. Right. So they... they sh- Actually, it's not him. Oh, it's I, not him. No. It's the one after it's him. the young guy. Right, the younger guy after him, right. Um, so... Sorry, that was... That's, crimi- that's, criminal, that's intent. criminal intent. It's all good. Right, sorry. sorry We're sorry. fine. Um, so... They pl- because it's Jane Lynch and he's playing his mother and he's remembering me as a five year old right when he's five and I'm creepy, um, <laughs> you know. So a I'm looking into the camera because we're seeing it we're we're seeing the the flashback through his eyes. Usually actors don't look directly into the camera. No, no, no. And when I'm doing that and you go from me being nonchalant talking to the camera to the picture of a five year old. That's pretty creepy. Yeah. If it's me doing the same thing and you flash to a picture of a 25-year-old woman, it's still creepy. It's just different. Right. It's a different kind of creepy. Right. Right. Which goes back to the old uh, Russian experimentation in the silent era with with editing at about 1915 where they would take the same picture of a guy looking nonchalantly into the camera and then uh, flash back and forth between food and death and destruction and flowers. Yeah. You know, and... And every time you go back to his face, it's the same expression, except you think the expression is different because, because of, of what you saw before. What's the context? It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, so this criminal minds thing plays virtually once a month on A and E, and I know this because every time it plays, inevitably one of my four thousand <laughs> five hundred friends on Facebook hey, goes, "Creepo, dude!" Yeah. You know, this last one was New Year's Eve. <laughs> a friend of mine in San Diego, who's a promoter, who used to. Uh, 
well, I used to play at one of his nights, um, literally took a screenshot of my <laughs> mugshot on television yes, yes. and put it on Facebook. Yes. And pretty soon, 85 people are liking it. Yeah. And I'm having to po- po- poke fun at myself because, you know, what else are you going to do? Right. Yeah. You know, so... Um, uh, the year after that, I booked Modern Family. Sadly, the the part I shot didn't actually air, so well, that's too bad. I don't get the Modern Family fans, although I still get paid and I still get residuals. Nice. The 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 happy thing about Modern Family repeatedly playing is it means I usually get a thirty dollar check four times a year. Cool. If not more. Woohoo! Exactly. Well, that's a tank of gas or uh, you know a half something. a bag of groceries or something. Exactly. But um, yeah. So uh, so yeah, there's the acting thing. Mm-hmm. There's the club DJing thing, which I still do in San Diego for clubs about once a month, which I still do up in Seattle whenever I'm up there mm-hmm. at uh, the Mercury or uh, a night called uh, Ceremony, which is sort of a, a, a flashback to the old Vogue, which was really the club that brought industrial music and, and the fetish thing back to Seattle in 92. Oh, that's cool. Um, uh, I mean, my roots in radio go all the way back to... Uh, a high school radio station that I stumbled upon um, after a summer spent, the last week of summer spent in L.A. and San Diego. My first trip to California was with my parents, uh, basically the final week of August. I get back to Seattle, and I'd been going to private Christian schools my whole life. And I went to school. Like the f- you do. Yeah, I went to school the first day, looked around and said, oh, God, I got to get out of here. Yeah, yeah. Because my, my fondest memory of being in L.A. was being in East L.A., parked outside like some, you know, walk-up Mexican, you know, hole-in-the-wall restaurant, and watching a couple of cholos looking at me like, I hate you. And I felt like that was the most genuine thing I'd ever experienced in my life. Nice. You know? Nice. So I'm like, okay. Reality check. Reality I love this place. You hate me. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, Whitey. Thank it's, you. It's like Data when he gets his emotion chip and he's like, <laughs> I hate this. That's more, you know. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because yeah. it's the exactly. only genuine emotion ever experienced. Right. So, uh, um, yeah, it's it's amazing when you when you step outside the bubble, and that, and we've all had we all had that one that one time in our life where we stepped outside of our bubble, right. and we're we're either terrified or we embrace it wholeheartedly and want more. And fortunately, some of us, well, unfortunately, a lot of people, when that happens to them, that kind of taints them their, them for life, and they wind up not uh, ever wanting to go outside of their little comfort zone or their right. bubble ever again. Yeah. And that's, you know, how we get certain segments of the population right. being the way they are. So that's the way it is. But fortunately, some of us do find ways to, to embrace those more genuine experiences, I think, and, and find... Seek out our our people, really. I think is what a lot of a lot of people that I know call it. It's finding your people and 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 realizing that you're not meant to be one of the normies. Living a life with creativity. It's yeah, not, yeah, yeah. It's not easy to do, but it's doable. It's yeah. doable even in the society that we live in. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, and one of the things that's always kind of mystified me. I've always been really, really chained to i mean and that's how i feel most of the time chained to a normal nine to five day a day working career and really unable to escape that and i'm really really dying to escape that i really want to break out of that and get into a more creative lifestyle right creative working lifestyle and how to how to make my way and i'm not talking fame and fortune i'm just talking 
feeling like I am creating as I for, for to eat basically. Right. So so yeah. what what I do in order to put food on the table ha- has a creative element to it. Right. Well, and a this is a good start. Yeah, you know, yeah. Having conversations with other people who are who are doing the same thing, sure, or trying to do the sure. same thing that you want to do. Um, you know, it's funny because I've worked. I mean, I don't. I could probably sit down and try to count how many quote unquote jobs I've had, but in terms of how many situations and how many places I've gotten paid to do a various amount of things, I don't think I could count on ten sets of hands and feet. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um. But there were certain points where, because I've always been a creative person, I mean, you know, the radio thing started for me in high school running an R&B rap station because I literally got plopped into a situation where um, I was a junior, everybody else on the air, you know, running the format and, and being on the air and everything were all seniors, and all the underclassmen had left because there was this secretary that everybody hated. Mm. And she drove them all away. <laughs> Once and, again, there's that one person. That right, that one person. Away. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, and it wasn't like she she just hated everybody, and yeah, I don't yeah, even know why. Yeah, yeah. I was willing to put up with it because evidently I'm willing to put up with almost anything. Um, but as it turned out, when everybody else graduated, especially the black guys in the central district of Seattle, which is where all the black people were, and most all the black people still are, because Seattle remains one of the more segregated cities in yeah, the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I noticed that when I was there. It's very, yeah. very white in... in... Which, which explains why I came to L.A. and said, you hate me! Thank you! <laughs> um, I hate white people, too! <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, white people. Oh, whitey. That's one thing we mentioned on the podcast <laughs> over and over again. Oh, white people. Good old white people. <laughs> Yay, whitey. Anyway. <laughs> um, yeah. Anyway, so... Um, uh, so I wound up as a junior being the news and sports director for this station and wound up getting this R&B rap thing plopped on my lap and uh, got taught basically how to DJ and how to, you know, how to approach the music end of it from these guys who had started it and were all graduating. Um, and then got my first pro radio gig while I was still a senior in high school. Cool. Um, God, I was dying for that at that age. I was really dying to get into radio i was i was with my first wife and i was just just god that's what i wanted to do more than anything and then i got into i got into an internship at a radio station that's still on the you know one of the big station in denver i got an internship there wasn't even going to school got an internship and tried really hard to try and do and made you know i did i had a couple commercials go on the air a couple of spots and a couple of this and that that i worked on a couple of of contest promos and things like that but trying to become that on-air personality that i wanted to become i always had this problem that everything i everything that i said sounded rehearsed like it was rehearsed in my head and i didn't was was always unable to kind of have that natural ease of of a voice of being able to just kind of make love to the microphone right. like 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 DJs do. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I was somebody who did a certain amount of acting when I was uh in grade school. I mean, sadly, going to private Christian schools 
meant that you didn't do a whole lot of plays. Sure. The one play we did do was in fifth grade, or I was in fifth grade, it was a musical. It wasn't Godspell, was it? No. <laughs> no, it was a musical about a kid who didn't believe in Christmas, who oh, by the wow. end of the musical believes in Christmas. Of course, of course. Um, I don't think there's going to be although, a Christmas all, this year. All leads, but wait. Yeah, all, leads were, all of the leads you know, were supposed to be sixth graders. Sure. I wound up getting the lead as the kid who didn't believe in Christmas because it was just such immaculate casting. Um, to this day, I remember how the play begins. I just don't remember how it ends because in the end, evidently, I get converted and I don't do conversion very well. Right, right. Um, but uh, uh, so it's funny because I didn't get back into acting really after the fifth grade until uh, like 2003, 2004, mm-hmm, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I was about to do my first scene in acting class since the fifth grade, I, I remembered, you know, thinking right before I went on stage in fifth grade, I don't believe this first line. It's, it's, like it's going to come out and it's going to be fake. Well, and this is partly because I had a teacher in fifth grade who knew how to teach us the basics of, you know, what to think about. Right. And the funny thing is... In terms of acting. Right. I know all the things I learned in radio. Now, basically, you know, and um, I'm helping the new host of on the Edge, the radio show, the Goth Industrial Radio Show in Seattle that I've been the sub-host for since last February when Paul Allenkoff came down with uh, uh, a, uh, a, uh, a heart aneurysm. Um, there's going to be a new local host, and he's an old, old friend of mine. He actually worked as an intern in radio in Seattle mm-hmm. the same time I was working at this radio station called K+. Um, he never got on the air, but he's done virtually everything else, club DJing and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. computer stuff, all this other stuff. The basics of learning how to do a radio set is basically write out your breaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's funny because, you know, it's sort of like a multi-step process. Now, in terms of radio, obviously, it's, you know, call letters, um, your name. It used to be call letters, time your name. Sure. You know, back. But even by the time the early 80s hit, the time wasn't right. as important right, right, as it used to right. be. Um, but... You know, constructing your breaks and keeping it to one or two ideas. And, um, you know, the first step is you write out every single word and you read each word. And maybe after you get used to that a little bit, then you take out the conjunctions. And then you then you write down only... I used to get to the point where I'd just write abbreviations of certain words. Then it got to the point where I'd only need to write three or four words and I'd remember the entire break. Mm-hmm. What you're doing is you're building a structure of what you're going to say and how you're going to say right. it. Right, and you just have a few key things to, to prod Right, you. because at, at that point you've built... The framework. I mean, it's like any other art form. Sure. You build the basic building blocks, and that's probably the most frustrating part of it. Is after you've built the building blocks, then you're trying. Then you're trying to go from, you know, sort of woodenly following those building blocks to when it becomes natural and second nature. That's sure. the most frustrating part of the process. Oh yeah, yeah. And it's the same process you go through as an actor. Oh yeah. Because when See, you're now acting on a stage with a script. Right, going over and over and over again. I don't have any problem with that. Okay, and I, you know, I, I'm actually f- just finished my first stand-up routine that I've written in probably 25 years. Oh, nice. And I, man, yeah, maybe not that long, but anyway, I just finished a, a five-minute for specifically for doing open mics. I don't have a, the whole stage fright problem. But when I was doing radio, every time I was trying to do radio, I was 
playing at being casual right. and conversational yep. rather than just being casual and conversational. Right. And it never sounded right. And I never got anything other than, wow, you're not right for this. You know, right. no, you, this is this, this, what you, what you're making is doesn't work. And right. obviously the way that you, the way that every person I know who works who's worked in radio all started the same place, either high school radio station or college radio station, where it doesn't matter so much less. They just want a body in there to go on and talk and spin records and spin and do spots, and you get to the point where you're actually doing that to where you can actually trade in a trade in a a a, a, a an air check tape and and actually get a job in rip commercial radio. Right. Well, the part of the challenge is radio up until like the mid '90s was a place where if you were starting out, you might get an internship at a major market, but the the number of people who would get on the air in a major market station in their late teens, early 20s was minuscule. Yeah, minuscule, yeah. Um, because there were small market stations that you could go to and learn your craft. Right. Now, when, when um, uh, Clear Channel started buying out small to medium market stations to treat them like satellite repeaters... Um, thinking that somehow they would get rid of all the staff and, you know, get rid of all the overhead and they'd make lots of money, which has never worked. Right. And now Clear Channel themselves are in year five of Bain Capital, you know, divestment. Wait another year and a half, guys, and Clear Channel will be no more. <laughs> the seven-year plan. Thank you, Mitt Romney. Um, well, Mitt's not with them anymore, but um, but I like blaming Mitt for it, so there you go. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, at this point, ironically... You get somebody who's an intern at a radio station here. We're sitting inside the studio adjacent to the Jack FM studio in Los Angeles. Yeah, we're Down sitting hall, inside CBS Radio in CBS in Radio uh, on, in Culver City, you know, corner of Venice and Fairfax. Down the hall is K Rock. Up the hall is is um, Amp Radio. These days, the stories of somebody in a major market who comes in as an intern, starts cutting commercials, and then gets a shot on the air. I wouldn't say it's commonplace, but it's a lot more common than it used to be. Yeah, yeah. And it's kind of, in some ways, I actually think it does the long-term jock a disservice because more often than not, you're putting somebody on the air before they're really prepared for it. Mm, mm. Um, it's somewhat akin to... A lot of times they bring on the intern to kind of knock around, make fun of. It, it, they bring well, on the, them as a comedy foil kind of thing. Not so much anymore. I mean, mm. radio in some ways, which was a much crueler business in the in the pre oh yeah corporate dog era. Dog. I never got anywhere close to even anything. I wound up board opping one remote once, and then I used to kind of be the sparring partner with a with a, one of the regular uh, midday DJs, right. and he would bring me on and just kind of chit chat, and we'd joke around on the on the air. Yeah, but. Uh, I never got anywhere with that beyond that. But well, he helped me learn, learn production. He taught me production. Oh, great. So I could actually produce spots and use the multi-track machine and all that right. sort of stuff back in the days of reel-to-reel and carts and all that lovely stuff. Now uh, everything's done on computers. But Yeah. Um, so it is it is a different world now to get into the, into the radio thing. But the challenge of putting someone fairly inexperienced on the air is somewhat akin to throwing a beginning actor up on a stage in front of a thousand people. Sure, sure. And you may not think that radio, you know, it's just, you don't know. You're sitting in a room, you're by yourself, you're talking into a microphone like you're talking to 10,000 people. And actually you are talking to 10,000 people, but you're talking to them one at a time. So a one lesson in talking casually to another person as a radio DJ is 
you're talking to one person. Yeah, and I tried that. I had a picture, and I right. put it up there, and yeah. I would talk to them. And it still just sounded like I had words written down on you the paper pro- that I was reading. You probably just needed to go to a small market and do it five days a week. Right, and I, that's one thing I couldn't do because I, I couldn't... Yeah, I, that's one thing I couldn't do because I was already married, and I was already stuck in the right. trap of not working 9 to 5, and I never just kind of was able to break right. out so, of Right, so, you know, really, I mean, it, they say in any given art form, it takes like 10,000 hours to become an expert at it. Right. right. So what and I would in s- some In some aspects, I think that's true. And in some pa- aspects, I, d- I think it's not. I think that theory discounts natural talent. Well, there is natural talent. And in the process of developing natural talent, you can discover things. I mean, like, I think the Beatles are, you know, if you listen through their discography from beginning to end, you learn how to go from being a semi-proficient um, you know, songwriter and musician to how to make creative ideas work. Sure, sure. And so sometimes there are folks who become well-known as they are going through the process of learning what they do. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it says, I mean, the other old rule, it takes 11, year, it takes 11 years to be an overnight success. Doesn't always happen that way. Someone like uh, uh, Heath Ledger. You know, he was somebody who started acting when he was a teenager. Then he got big at like 17 or 18 or 19 with, you know, 10 Things I Hate About You. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And what I read about him, his mother talked about this, that he would agonize over every single role. He would like spend six months tearing his hair out, hitting his head against the wall going, I don't get this. I don't know what the fuck I'm going to do. I'm going to screw this up. Oh my God, what the hell am I going to do? Even the, the even the Joker thing took him until nearly when they started to, to go, wait, I know what I'm going to do with this. Right, right, right. Now, on that final film that he was doing with, with uh, uh, Terry Gilliam that yeah. he didn't finish, yeah, yeah, yeah. he had called his mother soon before his death and said, oh, my God, Mom, I think I actually know what my process is now. Because, I mean, part of the thing as an actor is you're trying to figure out how to take these words on a page mm-hmm. that somebody else wrote... And be able to say them and make decisions about how you feel and what you do in a way that that is not only believable but entertaining while dealing with cameras and lights and marks and all these other things. Sure, you know, sure. Filmmaking and acting and TV shows and acting are an extremely technical process. Sure, sure, yeah. It's, you know... Um, lots and lots of people. It's not well. All we really see is the actor, the set, you know, the lighting. All we see is what we right, see. Right. All we hear is what we hear. But there's for every one person you see on camera, there's a hundred people behind them. Right. And the whole point of the acting thing is it's supposed to look like you're not acting. Right. It's supposed to look natural. Right. And- so, so the the it's it's the most it's the most untruthful way to get to truth, which is yeah, why you yeah, say actors are liars. Yeah. Actors are liars. Actors are professional liars. They they they. they they make a living pretending. But they lie to tell the truth. Right. That's true. Which is, you well, know. Well, you hope. You hope, <laughs> yeah, anyway. Exactly. And the best stuff t- does have a nugget so, of truth in it somewhere. So, but, you know, so there are cases where you see people develop and grow before your eyes. And hell, most most artists, you know, get to the point where everything they do is a progression or a change or a you know, move towards something else. Um, that's where I think, you know, getting... Knowing you're a communicator, so how do you communicate something in a way that is both necessary and engaging? Sure. You know, you can do something in a necessary way that's just boring as crap. Yeah, that's probably most of my adult life. (laughs) Uh, 
Well, now, so I would say that first off, if you're going to, if you want to be a creative person, if you want to build a bridge from where you are to where you want to be, which is making money doing something creative. Sure. Now, A, this isn't necessarily a great age to do that because, um, as I put it to people over the years, being in Seattle in the 80s and watching the bands sure. assemble, watching sure. the musicians assemble. Sure. I mean, the whole reason why Timing I didn't leave Seattle and, and go to someplace like Salt Lake City to work at a radio station full time was because I knew and a whole bunch of us knew that Seattle had a growing scene, that something was going to happen. We didn't think it was going to be the short, cute guy with long blonde hair from Aberdeen, but, you know. <laughs> um, but we knew it was going to happen. And part of the reason why it was happening in Seattle two main factors. One was sort of a cultural factor. Seattle had um, creatively interesting radio stations. They had high-quality radio. You know, album rock was big in Seattle. The number one music format in Seattle went once FM became king from 78 to about 82 was the album rock station, PISW. the AOR stuff. Yeah, Yeah, the AOR stuff. I mean, it, it outdrew the news stations, which, you know, usually the news stations... Usually are news one stations everywhere. are king. Right. Now, Seattle, because it was a port town, would always get in, you know, the music from overseas, whether it's from Japan or even from Great Britain. Uh, Seattle had, like, three different new wave stations that played at some point between 1978 and 1988. Wow. You know, which, you know, I mean, K-Rock, you know, there was 91X, there was a couple other stations in the country, but Seattle was always fairly ambitious musically. Um, and it had the history of, of everything from, you know, uh, Jimi Hendrix and Quincy Jones to the Sonics, who had been influential for bands like the Beatles and the Kings yeah, yeah. and the Who. Sure. And then the Sonics turned around and were such legends that a lot of the guys in my age group who were picking up guitars rediscovered the Sonics because even the Beatles, you know, uh, the Beatles sent a message to the Sonics back in 64, 65 saying, we wouldn't have our sound if it weren't for you. But even then, for them, that muddy garage sound of, of the Sonics, the, the farthest they could go was, you know, um, I Feel Fine and the, and the feedback at the beginning of the song. Right, right. You know, but if you listen to the first Beatles album with the Beatles and then you go two, three albums down the line, you hear where they did what they could to mess it up as much as they could. Mm-hmm. But the Sonics wound up inspiring an entire new generation of kids my age into being, you know, sonically messy mm-hmm. during an era where music was clean culture was clean right, right everybody right. was supposed to be happy right. under reagan bush you're happy and if you're not fuck you yeah yeah here have some cocaine you're be happy. happy have some cocaine go out and go to malls and go spend money and that right. that's good that's progress that's exactly that's that's, pro- that's pr- prosperity and you know you can you can lie for a long time but inevitably you know the the lie will crack under the weight of the truth sure sure and for whatever reason... Boy, he did it. <laughs> well, yeah. And, and really, you know, because I had a friend in Seattle who was all into the Manchester bands and thought Nirvana was a passing phase, oh, blah, yeah. blah, blah. Oh, you know, Nirvana's so trendy. The the, Ma- the Manchester music is what's really going to last. Oh, it's funny because now, there was around the time I started club DJing in Denver, about 94, 95. Yeah. There, one of the DJs started a Manchester night, thinking that was going to be a thing. He got two two nights in, two weeks in. It was like on a, a Monday, Tuesday night thing. But he got two weeks in, and he goes like, "I only have enough songs to play the exact same songs every week. There aren't enough Manchester bands right. to be able to do this." Yeah. And this is just before Oasis hit. 
Ah, <laughs> just before Oasis Day. Now, We're the Beatles. Right. No, you're not. Yeah. Shut We're up. We're the greatest band in the world. Well, that's because their A&R guy told him, you sound like the Beatles. Yeah. So pretty soon they started saying it to themselves. Yeah. Oh, and Paul McCartney once called them a Beatles cover band. <laughs> <laughs> and not even a very good one. No, no, no. Well, no. I, I like Oasis. And I like well, yeah, Oasis, I don't Oasis for what they are. They, they're of their own their no, own I, ilk, and they know, were interesting and fun. And, and I met the guys after, after uh, the brothers reunited the first time. Mm-hmm. And they did their what turned out to be their final tour before right. the older brother finally said, "You're crazy! I'm leaving." They, they released that last album with that one single that was like 12 minutes long God. or something. All around the world, that right. song is so long. <laughs> yeah, well, them and uh, them and what passes for Guns and Roses now, right? <laughs> um, oh, the so, Primal Scream that that yeah. Screamadelica album had a couple songs on it. The, they played on the radio a lot, but they only played a snippet of it because a couple of those songs were right. eight or nine minutes. Right. So, um, where was I? I got lost somewhere. So the Seattle bands, um, part of what you had was you had this rich culture. You also had between about 86 and 90, almost no clubs that would let young musicians play. Right. Uh, basically every other club in town was playing like blues or jazz and these young, and, and pretty much. Part of the thing about Seattle, especially, Seattle is an intense baby boomer town. Mm -hmm. I mean, the age range of people, it shocked me the percentage of the population in other cities that weren't simply baby boomers when I left Seattle. I kind of knew it, but it really became obvious when I would travel, because in the 2000s, I traveled doing hip-hop dances um, for Model Search America. And Portland is full of 20-somethings who think that they're baby boomers. (laughs) Well, there you go. Where 20-somethings go to retire. (laughs) Oh, my. Um, Anyway, so... um, Get a fixie bike and some gluten-free bread. Right. So you had to basically... You had no choice. You had to go to each other's shows. You didn't necessarily play all that often. Um, Sub Pop started as a fanzine in the late 70s, early 80s. And then it became a radio show in 82 on KCMU, which was uh, the UW's other college station other than KUOW, KCMU was playing essentially college music. Sure. Well, literally. And that's um, what all the altern- a lot of the alternative stations that would became alternative stations were all started off as college radio stations. Right. K- KCRW in, in, or not KCRW, sorry, KT- KTCL, uh, Fort Collins, in De- and it's now in Denver, but when it started off as the Fort Collins College Station. Right. And then they started broadcasting their signal Denver and eventually just moved the whole the whole station to Denver. Oh, wow. And I have a friend who's a very good friend who works at a smaller station in at a smaller town in Colorado who was a DJ on KTCL and was also um, a, a, uh, another uh, VJ on Teletoons, which was the local uh, music video show on public TV mm-hmm. back in the 80s and 90s. I was a VJ on there as well and a programmer mm-hmm. and my oh, ex-wife nice. and her best friend was the music director for years, mm-hmm. so... Here's the thing that's always bugged me about the term alternative. The entire reason why that term exists is because of baby boomers. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, radio up, um, radio in its heyday between the late 40s, early 50s, and the late 70s when AM was king, um, basically, and when the baby boomers started getting born in the early 40s, mm-hmm. and by the late, you know, the, by the mid 50s when rock and roll came along, you know, radio stations were basically playing whatever music was hip and new. Right. It was always about looking for the new sound. You wanted to get the new sound. Uh, there's that sequence in uh, uh, Ray. Thing. Oh, Ray. In right. Ray, where, you know, Ahmed Erdogan, Atlantic Records, signs him, 
you know, Ahmed's an a-, a jazz guy, and he's like, there's something special about this Ray guy. He can, you know, he can do anything. Well, then they go in to record, you know, what's their first song, and and Ray's basically just copping this one other singer, and it's obvious, and and so Ahmed stops the recording. He goes in there and says, look, Ray. I signed you not because I want you to sound like somebody else, but I want you to sound like you. Mm-hmm. Because there's something to you that isn't like anybody else. And what Ray figured out was all of God's music that he was listening to and playing along with as, as a blind young black child. All of a sudden, if he put uh, if he put secular lyrics to it, people went ape shit crazy. Either they loved it. Or they were religious and they were like up in arms about him, you know, dirtying up God's music. It's just like the South Park episode where they did the opposite. They took old old rock and roll songs and put Christian lyrics on them and became a Christian rock band. <laughs> called Love Plus One, I think. Or Love, oh, Love something like that. Oh my. Yes, South Park. But yeah, the thing about the word alternative, for me, it started off as just an MTV buzzword. But it was a good... It Later on, for me, it became an umbrella term for all those genres that weren't R&B, rap, or straight but here's, pop. Here's the problem. So, you know, Top 40 in its heyday in the 60s and 70s was always about a cross-section of everything. Sure. You know, it was R&B, but it was also sure. rock. I mean, think about it. The boy bands of the early mid-60s were yeah. The Kinks, The Beatles, The Who, The Rolling Stones. Um, and those are just the British bands. You know, all these bands that came along and it continued into the 70s. I mean... What we now call classic rock, half of it was pop music. Yeah, you're right. You know, right. Queen was charting on the radio oh, yeah. playing music. You bet. Now you can, you can, in some ways, you can, um, uh, you can credit the Beatles and Sgt. Pepper for the kind of musical ambition that drove a lot of the other boy bands of their time, who had been inspired by the Beatles in the first place, to then up their game and that that continued all the way through the 70s it's like you can count almost every major band had their own you know day in the life had their own hey jude or had their own stairway to heaven you know even sticks had their own stairway to heaven yep you know it's it's you know every band would would strive to have that extra something yeah yeah um free but it was during right it was during it was during the heyday of the baby boom generation, yeah, yeah, yeah. and there was a lot of music, and most of the radio was there for the kids. Sure, yeah. You're radio right. for the adults wasn't even as important. <clears throat> the top radio stations were broadcasting to teenagers, and radio spots didn't cost all that much. Radio stations didn't cost all that much to run. No, no, the no. cost of living wasn't terribly high. Now, as we hit the mid seventies, the mid late seventies, with the age of disco, where all the baby boomers in their twenties are going out and dancing to disco. Radio programmers, now up until that point, um, FM stations were owned, a lot of t- in the 60s into the 70s, a lot of FM stations existed because AM stations that were making the money would get an FM signal and just kind of run it and let the people there do whatever the heck they wanted to. Sure, because right. FM was the new fad. Well, it was. FM was sort of the equivalent of what television was in its first four years, which mm-hmm. was basically PBS. It was basically Freeform, television for yeah. re- rich, intelligent people. Right. FM, you had to have a home stereo because FM stereos didn't become standard in cars until 1978, yeah. which is when FM became king, the year... That FM radios got standard in American-made cars was the same year that the Walkman came out, which sure. was the same year that boomboxes started yep, coming out. Yep, yep. So all of a sudden, people are able to listen Music to FM. Music was portable. You no longer needed right. a hi-fi set at home to, do, to, to listen, listen to, to FM. Music. To listen to FM. Uh, now... So for AM, AM was really the age of... AM music was the age of baby boomers. Sure. Because as the baby boomers 
as the large numbers of people were all of a sudden not in their teens but heading into their 20s, was the same period of time that corporatization really began began to encroach in like 78, 79. So, and a curious group of radio professionals started to emerge calling themselves consultants. Sure. Now, in the age before consultants... Which is what WKRP was all about. Right. Now, in the age before consultants, you had... um, And the movie FM. True, true. Um, But in the age before consultants... One of my favorite Steely Dan songs, by the way. There you go. Um, Which, by the way... Chevy Chase has a really lousy track record of leaving projects before they become successful. <laughs> he not only left Saturday Night Live yes, a season yes, in. A season in, yeah. Not only did he leave, what was it, Community. Not only did well, that, he... Yeah, that, he, didn't, he didn't leave. He got fired. Okay, well, there you go. <laughs> they haven't and, officially said and, that. And, of course, his, his nighttime talk show host that didn't do very well. Oh, God, he was yeah, actually was an early drummer for Steely Dan. Yes, he was. And he left because they thought they weren't going to go anywhere. Yes, they were. Yeah, boy. Well, eventually everybody got fired out of Steely Dan except for those two guys. Yeah, but, yeah, know, there's yeah. that. Um, anyway, so um, consultants were folks in large markets who in previous times, if you were, say, a music programmer for an AM Top 40 station in uh, St. Paul, you probably weren't the best music guy. But there was this dude in Miami, and there was this dude in L.A., and there was this radio station in Seattle that seemed to always know how to break good new music. So it was almost a decentralized thing where the pro- pretty much 75 to 80% of the programmers were looking to the opinions of the other 20 to figure out what they were going to do. Well, Rodney Bingenheimer kind of spawned the what became the alternative movement. Right. And he was one guy working late nights at K-Rock. Right. And then on Sundays... And he brought the whole second British invasion over. Well, and, and with with the help of MTV. But here's True. here's so here's the funny thing. So seventy eight FM starts to take over at the very same time that consultants start coming in and advising radio stations. No, no, don't play this new wave. Don't play this punk rock. Even though it's just as edgy and new and different sounding than the Beatles were before. Then you know this stuff in the early seventies was. They're like, no, no, follow the baby boomers. You know, so they're basically, the ones with the money. They're the ones with Teenagers the money. Teenagers don't have any money right now. Right. So basically, radio went from serving teenagers and music innovation, and that's, ironically enough, where you get the period of time in 79, 80, and 81 where um, soft rock was king. Oh, yeah. Part of the reason why soft rock was king was because it was all that was left right. after the ambitious music that they refused right, to play. Right, Yeah. Soft rock... Advented about 74, 75, your bread, well, your America, and, your, ste- your, right. your Seals and Crofts. But and by the late 70s, wings. it was. Right. By the late 70s, it was like Little River Band. Sure. And, and Top sure. 40 wasn't playing a lot of the, um, a lot of the uh, album rock stuff. No. You know, they were playing some of it. But so there they are, trying to appeal to, to, to older people than the teenagers. And radio and music, the music industry actually goes into a slump. It they were hitting the eighteen to twenty fives, not the or the eighteen right. to thirty fives, not the not the teenagers, not the, right. not, the not the fifteen to right. seventeen or fifteen to eighteen. So the irony is that in some ways, real top forty died in about nineteen between nineteen seventy eight and nineteen eighty one. It was given a reprieve by MTV mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. MTV came along yeah. in America and Revitalized decided new wave well, music and all but that. They, but they didn't. They weren't even trying to do that. 
I mean, basically, their first few years, they were just playing videos from whoever would make videos. True, true. I mean, they played Journey next to a flock of seagulls next to... You know, actually, I go back to Teletoons in Denver. Teletoons predated MTV. We had a music video show in Denver on the air in 1979. Right. And we were playing music videos... We were playing actually old, even like the old Beatles, Penny Lane, and all those little right. little video, yeah. little films that they did. Right. Playing stuff like that. And then along coming out was like Blondie, Heart of Glass, the or first David Devo. Bowie. Um, Bowie wasn't doing as much of that until a little bit later in the 80s, like around 81. But 78, 79, uh, 80, and back then it was called FMTV, and MTV actually paid the, the public TV station money to change their name to Teletoons because FMTV had the word M- MTV. Oh, wow. It had amazing. MTV as part of right. the name. So we were playing... I went back, and as a programmer, I went back to those first few videotapes, and eventually I wound up consolidating the whole library, recording the one-inch tape, or half, right. uh, three-quarter-inch tapes onto taking original videotapes from the labels and putting them on tapes that could hold more videos. Oh, wow. And it was, it was Blondie... And it was uh, Talking Heads, and it was the Ramones, and it was all the stuff, right. from the, all the CBGB bands from mm-hmm. in the New York from the late seventies, and uh, coupled with a couple of disco acts who were kind of doing that. But it was a lot of that really early primitive stuff. It was all shot on video. There was no film. There was no yeah. there was no production value to it as at that point. So, so new wave kind of you know. Bonks pop music over the head in 82 to 84, courtesy of MTV. Yes. Which in some ways to me is kind of a coda for that period of time, you know, and allowed us to see, you know, a stream of top well, bands in the mid-80s. because you weren't listening 80s. to music, you were also looking at music. Right. Now, and in the end, I think that's actually really hurt, but it, it at the time it was, you know, kind of an artistic high. But what you still wound up having was radio where... You know, the college music, it started to become college music because if you were doing ambitious, different sounding music, by the time 85, 86 came around, when I was working for a a top 40 station, a CHR station that wouldn't play Suzy, that wouldn't play The Cure, that wouldn't play Depeche Mode, even though they were selling out stadiums. Right. You're right. Because it didn't fit their model. It didn't fit the American record label Even the radio station that I listened to, KTCL, they wouldn't play Bauhaus during the day. They'd only play it late at night. Right. And it's like, why wouldn't you? Well, she's in parties. That's a great song. Right. Well, it was it was this kind of conservative. Sure. Yeah. There was this you know, thing. We don't want to play anything too weird. Right, right. Which is like you know you would never have thought of that in the '60s or '70s. No, there was no. nothing too weird in no, the '70s. No, they were playing. Zappa. I mean, come on, Sid and Marty Croft did their crap in the '70s. Yeah. Yeah. Sid, That's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, they were doing Pink Floyd, playing Pink Floyd and and Zappa and you know all the really weird stuff. Right. Right. And then all the novelty records too. They would play it on regular top forty or AOR exactly. stations. No. Well, you know, there's um, so basically the '80s are when things started to get really right. kind of safe. Well, and and ironically, at the same time, record producers were starting to make um, they they got on this this whole kick of making things sound really clean. Yeah, 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 yeah. Very, very, very tightly pristine. Produced. Even if you go back and listen to the SNL, uh, you watch SNL uh, uh, recordings from. The '80s, the Dick Ebersol years. Even the bands that would play the when they would play the interstitial, they would show the picture of the host yeah. and play the little interstitial in between commercials before they went back yeah. to the show. It sounded very like in a studio, no echo. It right. just sounded very clean. All the right. horns had a had a all the horns would cut off with a hard out. There was no echo. There was no. And right. It was very, that very clean, crisp, mm-hmm. you know, real right. staccatoy type sound. You know, the, so the the, the mid '80s too. All the music video stuff started kind of in in England and and America um, with kind of 
avant-garde rock, uh, art, artsy rock, art rock, uh, the CBGB's bands, like I said. And it wasn't until about 83, 84 that the R&B bands and the rap bands started, st- rap artists started taking advantage of the vi- music video well, format. Pu- right, and, and, and the unfortunate thing is that from that time, I mean, there was always a certain amount of, of musical segregation. Yeah, you're right. But... The 70s were kind of like, especially during the Carter years between 76 and 80, it was almost like there was a complete detente. And top 40, in some ways, you know, the black music and the white music and everything kind of coexisted. Sure. Um, The term alternative, what is it an alternative to? That's the question I was always having in the 90s. And here's, here's the answer. It's the music that consultants won't let you play on regular radio stations. Yes. It's basically sequestered, you know, ambitious creative music to this other category. So they've categorized the white people music as alternative and and the black music for everybody else as, you know, the CHR. But there was white people music that wasn't alternative. Things right. like Madonna, things right. like Cindy Lauper, right. things that that and their very, very early stuff kind of sort of fit in with New Wave and kinda of had a new wavy edge to it. Right. But there was stuff there was definitely a bit big, huge Great Wall of China between pop and alternative music. But here's but here's the interesting thing now. After after New Wave kinda of died right. off. Well here's the thing. So, what, about four years ago, dance music came back to hip-hop. All of a sudden, you know, sort of almost a, you know, a current reiteration of sort of the 80s dance music vibe came back to hip-hop. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And the same thing has happened to what we would call alternative music, what K-Rock plays, what 91X plays. There's, there's a danceable vein to it, partly because you've got a generation of people in their 20s who are, make, who are using music software when they were five. Right. Well... K-Rock now is not playing rock, and they're not playing alternative. No, they're They're not. playing twee pop. They're playing Mumford & Sons. They're playing uh, Gautier. They're playing stuff that is not avant-garde, that is not creatively forward, necessarily. It's all a lot of music that borrows from older past styles of music. Right. And... It's all very cute and sweet, and it, and there it seems like we're back in the age of Debbie Gibson and Tiffany again. In that music is being aimed at thirteen-year-old girls again. Well, maybe that's where I feel that okay. pop, mu pop, and <clears throat> K rock and all that. It's, right, that's their list. Well, there isn't there isn't as much difference between say um, white. I should I should specify white teenage girls. White okay, well there you go, girls. Um, but it's, you know, the upside of this is that dance music's kind of come back to everything. And and you're seeing what you would term to be alternative bands being played on top 40 stations. And you're you're having some, you know, some crossover, which I think is actually a good thing. Right, right, right. Um, so, you know, to there me... There are a few bands that, that slip in, in in between here and there. What I'm finding is the bands that inter- interest me the most now are French electronic bands, like okay. M83. I think right. that M83 track, Midnight City, was one of the first things that... 2013 was an astoundingly good year for music. Yeah. It was such a good, thick, rich, full year of old bands that that put out new material, and uh, old alternative bands, and newer bands that had a good, unique sound or something that really... And also, the re-advent of the sax solo. Well, there you go. <laughs> That's something yep. that they brought back. Yep. But then 2014 was a dirt. There was hardly anything. Bowie right. put out something, and there were a couple other little things. But right. there wasn't the only real new band that piqued my interest at all was like Saint Vincent, and a lot of people really don't like her. A lot of right. people really don't like Saint Vincent. I liked 
it because to me it was very throwback to kind of Gary Newman post-punk kind right. of avant-garde yeah. kind of um, very uh, stylized stage persona and the music was really interesting and the visually visually was very interesting to watch but there's not a lot that's going on like that right and everything else is big guys with beards, you know, five guys right. in a band with beards and wearing, you know, waffle, <laughs> waffle cut, to, you know, waffle, uh, long john shirts and singing about problems that happened a hundred years ago. Right. So here's my question for you. Is there anything creative in your life that really, that really speaks to you that you would want to invest your time and energy into building a bridge to doing it for a living? Well, the podcast, for one. I okay. love doing the podcast. And actually, I, I, I'm having a very healthy kind of zen attitude about it of of I'm not expecting this to go big, huge. I would love yeah. it to. And I'm working hard and putting energy into it as if it was something really big, huge, and something right. as if it were something I am getting paid for. This yeah. is truly a work of labor of love and a work of passion. And I'm, I'm going for it of I want to talk to creative people about the stuff they do. Right. And it's working and people like it. Mm-hmm. And I have gotten like zero negative feedback on this on this oh, podcast, probably because not very many people are listening. But I keep looking at our stats on SoundCloud, and we've got thirty over thirty countries that this is being listened to in. Oh, nice! And our listenership now for the nineteen episodes as of today was twenty seven hundred people. So Hello, twenty seven hundred. How are you? Hello. Might, might amount to you know a hundred people or something like that worldwide, but you know, hey, that's nothing to complain about. Yeah. But at least we're being listened to. And um, the the other thing is something... There's a few things I've been thinking about this very question a lot in the last... Especially in the last six months or so. And even more so since I started the podcast. The other purpose of the podcast is to get the creative juices flowing to push me in toward creating other things. Right. And... I finally got five minutes of stand-up going. I've always wanted to be... I always wanted to be a radio DJ. That didn't work out. And I and there was a thing where I really finally made peace with the fact that that was never going to be something yeah. that I was going to be able well, to do. Well, and to be perfectly blunt, you don't make a whole lot of money doing no, it. No, you so, don't. You, know, you was... don't. But the other thing was stand-up. And stand-up... Being on a stage and saying words and having people laugh is like heroin to me. Oh. But I never... <clears throat> I was in a relationship for a very long time where pursuing that was discouraged. Okay. And now I'm in a, no longer in that relationship, and I'm in a relationship where I'm very supported in that venue. Okay. And I'm finally, finally moved past my wall of fear to write yeah. this material, and, and I'm going to go do an open mic next... I'm doing an open mic next week, Thursday. Yes! Yes! The other thing is that I find that I love that's like heroin, not only saying my own words... That are that make people and having an audience laugh. Other people's acting. My ex-wife uh, is in the Santa Clarita Master Corral. I did plays for their benefit nights, their madrigal nights, right. and I would do these kind of like bastardizations of Shakespeare and loved it. And it was good. So it was something I was good at. I did it several years in a row. People always loved it. People came up to me afterwards and said, you did a great job. And there were sometimes famous people because there are a couple of semi-famous people who live in Valencia who right. who patronize the arts and patronize the, nice. uh, the the master crowd. And so I got a lot of good compliments. And that, yeah. was, that felt really good. And I really enjoyed that as well. Right. So, but the big thing is... I could go if I was if I was twenty and not married, twenty five and not married. I could go and pursue all this stuff and not worry about right. eating, or I could crash on a friend's couch, or whatever. But now I feel like I'm really, really 
not stuck as a negative word, but I'm really entrenched well, you need in, be- in a life that requires me to go and work 40 hours a week, 40 right. or more hours right. a week, uh, you know, nine to five. But I'm finding and actually doing it. I'm not making excuses anymore. This is my year to go. Even if it never leads anywhere, I'm going to go and start doing open mics and start doing stand up and start developing an act. And just just to go do it because this is what I need to do. Well, and and if you do that, I I mean, I actually think the the stand up thing could be a good way for you to go. Did you know that that uh, uh, Phyllis Diller didn't start doing stand up until her late thirties? Yeah, and Rodney Dangerfield didn't hit big till he was in his fifties. Right. So you know, yeah. you develop yeah. a personality. You develop. It's all about communication. Sure, anything sure. anything creative. It's about because we're all people in this world, and, and the only reason the why we're here is to talk to other people. And as I say all the time, I listen to a lot of podcasts, and I listen to a lot of podcasts with comedians. And the thing that they always keep saying is. Don't worry about what you think other people are going to laugh at. Find your true voice. Be yep. yourself. Yep. Find your real voice. And that, the comedy will be found there. And that's what I've started to do. Yeah. And it's working. And I'm starting to listen. And the, the first thing I listened to was make your own thing. And I started a podcast. The next thing I'm in is find your true voice. Write your thing. And just and they say, how do you start in stand-up? You show up and you get on stage and you start talking. That's how you start stand-up. And that's what I'm going to do. The other thing, the last final thing that I would really like to do, and I've had two different podcast guests recommend this, of going on to Voices.com, opening up an account, starting an account, paying the 40 bucks or whatever, creating some demos, doing some of my own stuff and creating demos, putting stuff out there, and starting to try and find gigs online. Because there's a, a plethora, a myriad, a cornucopia, if you will, of paid gigs Hundred dollars here, five hundred dollars there. Of hey, do our do our voice machine message. Do do a little blurb that's going to be our training video. Do this or that. Here's a script. Send us back a sample. And I have two, three friends who all do this, and do, they don't. They obviously they don't make their bulk of their you know bulk of their living off of it, but it gets money coming in, and yeah. they're doing their thing. Yeah. And so I'm doing that too. Oh, great. So I've started that. I started an account over the Christmas holiday and I recorded some demos and I'm going to record more and I'm going to buy an account, you know, pay for an account and do it. I think that's a great idea. The biggest thing I've always wanted help with though is somebody who was a professional who could really give me the kind of what I should be putting into most people's demo tapes, uh-huh. uh, demo reels for voice are stuff they've actually done and gotten paid paid to do. Right. I don't have that. So well, the biggest that is the biggest challenge and I've had, you know, there is an, an industry here in LA where you can you know, spend a thousand bucks work with somebody and put together you know, basically you'd be you'd be training and figuring out what types of things your voice is good for selling sure, or sure, doing. Sure. And then creating a demo that reflects that. Right. Now there's gen- I mean and the 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 world of voiceover is so Massive because there's everything from, you know, commercials to industrials to video books games, on tape, books on tape, audio books, animation, and each one sort of require each one requires a different demo, and some of them require very different approaches. Um, so it's really a matter of and and really in some ways it all comes back to what really drives you. What do you really want to do? Bob Bergen wanted to be the voice of Porky Pig back when Mel Blanc was alive. When Mel Blanc died, he fought for it and he got it. Cool. He's yeah, been doing I voiceover mean, ul- since he was like fourteen. Ultimately, my my ultimate dream gig is is cartoon VOs. Yeah, 
you know, and that would be my ultimate dream gig and or video games, that sort of thing. But I would I would just love to be able to do that because yeah. I've always had this kind of in the same way that Jim Carrey has a rubber face. I've always had kind of a rubber voice. I've always right. been able to do impressions. I mean, I, I I'm always doing Rodney Dangerfield at, at, at work, you know, hey, doll, how'd you like to earn $14 the hard way? <laughs> when I was so young, I'm so ugly, my dog, and they have to tie meat around my neck to make the dog play with me. When I was, <laughs> when I was born, I was so ugly, they slapped my mother. <laughs> so, you know, stuff like that. It's funny you talk about this. Uh, uh, a good friend of mine, um, I was walking in her backyard today and, and uh, did a bunch of gopher holes and she's like in her late 20s um and i'm like have you seen caddyshack and she's like uh no <laughs> so, so i showed her the the gopher compl- compilation of gopher footage yes, yes and uh yeah so caddyshack rodney dangerfield oh, yeah that's it. uh gotta watch it if you yeah. haven't seen it <laughs> look at this hat over here this is the kind of hat you get with a free bowl of soup <laughs> it looks great on you though Oh God! <laughs> oh man! Speaking of finding one's voice, um, you know, it's. Uh, I think we were talking. Were we talking on this podcast about? Oh yeah, about talent versus hard work. Sure, sure, sure. There's the a dynamic between thousand hours, but without a nugget of talent, you're not going to get anywhere. You're just right. going to be spinning your wheels. Right. Um, it's kind of funny because you know acting is kind of the. It's the job of being a professional human being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in some ways, acting, especially acting for camera, doesn't necessarily require a whole lot of talent. Mm. It requires a lot more skill. Yeah, yeah, now, the yeah. talent comes in being able to know what is important to do and what isn't important to do. The talent comes in do. the choices you make. I right. That's knowing when to your choose. Ta- actually, your work. talent is in your choices. That's what Stella Adler always said. Right. Um, and really, any person is capable of making quality choices because every single person has something different. You and me, you the listening audience, me and this guy here, we all have interesting things about ourselves that is unlike anyone Everybody's else. Everybody's a genius at something. That's right. Everybody's a genius at being who they are. Mm-hmm. You just may or may not have have fought to discover it yet. Some of us... Don't have a choice but to fight to discover it because life made it very difficult for us to avoid it. Mm -hmm. And in some ways, that can sometimes be the difference between a genius and a wannabe. The genius didn't really have a choice. They just had to do it. Well, in my life, I'm finding it more and more difficult to blend in. When I was a kid, I had difficulty blending in. Blending in in school, blending in at jobs, being a worker, just going to work and being a worker. Right. And I always had this feeling, always deep down in my guts, that this 9 to 5 thing or this whatever thing that I'm doing is not what I'm supposed to be doing. It's not for me. Right. And But I never had the opportunity, the way to make that not be what I had to do in order to eat. And so I'm feeling like now I'm starting to do little things to move in a direction to where I can get my, you know food money from somewhere else and if it happens it happens if it doesn't you know i still have my you know computer it i can go tolerate programmers i suppose if i need to well but i would say that that when you follow something that speaks to you creatively when Mm. you when you follow something just because you do i mean you know the example of someone like david byrne talking heads i mean they weren't necessarily trained musicians. I mean, a no. lot of the folks, and you know, you bang at something long enough, you figure out how to bang it in a way that's not a, that's not like anybody else. Um, 
Lane Staley is Ron, a great... Ron Jeremy made a career out of that. Uh, this is true. <laughs> Lane Staley, lead yeah, singer yeah. of Alice in Chains. Yeah. Um, his original 80s butt rock band <laughs> in the early mid-80s was called Alice in Chains, Chains of the Z. Yeah. He was a horrible singer. Yeah. I had a friend who... who um, had the the uh, the practice studio next to theirs, and he's like, "Man, this guy couldn't sing in tune. This guy couldn't sing. Period." And if you listen to Lane Staley, he sings like nobody else. Those harmonies yeah. are are almost dissonant. There is a dissonance to the harmonies in Alice in Chains music. And before he was even that good was when Jerry Cantrell met yep. him, and Jerry goes, "Oh my God, there is something about your voice unlike anybody else. Right. I know I and need you." And those two would harmonize together and create that that slap of right. like if you're at a club and you hear a song and they're trying to beat match into the next song and they don't quite get it that's called slap and beats and the beats slap it's, their voices would slap right. together that would create a third note right that worked exactly you get to and this note here and this note here and they're supposed to harmonize but they don't quite and it makes a th- it goes to a third place and it, it, there's a mu- whole musical theory behind that and it actually works sometimes the genius comes from having a vision of something and fighting like hell to get there and being willing to stumble as you get there, being willing to be wrong in order to be right, just fighting like hell. And sometimes what you find is something that on paper shouldn't work. Right. But for whatever reason, it does. Brian Cranston always said, I moved it. He said, I moved to California and I, to be an actor, I came out here at age blank and I was determined that this is what I was going to be doing. Even if I had to live in my car. Even if I had to not eat, even if I had to just, you know, live on the street, basically, this is what I needed to be doing. And I've never, I've always let the fear wall keep me from having that attitude. Well, but here's the interesting thing. You don't have to have the attitude of, you know, I'm willing to be homeless. Sure, sure, sure. You've just got to have the attitude of, I'm willing to have no idea where this is going to take me. Mm -hmm. I have to be willing to go up on that stage, you know, and feel uncomfortable. Sure. I just need to be willing. Just be willing to be uncomfortable. That's all happen, you need. To let it happen. You just need to be willing to to try things that you don't know are going to work. And also willing to not listen to people tell you that this is not what you should be pursuing because it's too competitive or too, you know, right? Yeah. As though somehow you're not one, good enough. That somehow one person's going to be more right than the other. If there's one thing I learned through music, in the late '70s, there were so many good bands. There were so many good movies. I mean. It's in entertainment, especially. There is no such thing as too many good people. No. The more good people you have, the more good stuff there is. Yeah. The more people pay for good stuff. Sure, sure. You know, if the music industry is hurting, it's because they're not doing their job. Well, I think the music industry is hurting because of music companies and music executives, not because of musicians. Well, a lot of it is, has been for a while now. I mean, the music industry itself was built on investing the profits of one generation's music into the next. And by generation, yes. I mean like two, three year cycles. Yes. I mean, you know, the sex pistols comp- kind of like a contractor. You, you, right. you, you collect the check to pay for the next gig. You know, the sex pistols, you know, you know, slapping arena rock was kind of ridiculous because they were being funded by the folks that they were poking fun at. You know, and don't, that's fine if that's what you want to do. But you know, don't say, you. yeah. It's like it's like the Seattle bands and and you know, more Seattle musicians I knew than I could count who were like, eh, corporate rock. I'm sorry, but you know, even though we might consider you know, Foreigner or Boston to be a little passe, I mean, 
I actually don't. I mean, I was like in my oh, teens yeah, when I those still came think out. Both of those bands, right? But the thing is, you know, those Seattle musicians who are bagging on them like they sold out. Um, no, they were just making a living and being fed. And some of them didn't even make as much money. And as it turned out, the the grand irony for someone like Kurt Cobain, who whether he even wanted to or not, had to sort of toe that whole you know corporate rock line. I mean, he was a victim of a record label that wasn't paying him what they owed him. Yeah. And especially if you get to a certain degree where you're you talking have about to, Sub Pop, or you're <clears throat> talking about Geffen. 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 Yeah. Um, I mean, and Sub Pop was a whole another you know financial nightmare. Right. Right. Um, but. You know, the whole point of doing art, I mean, you need to be able to make a living at it so you can keep doing it. Yeah, yeah. And we're living in an age where that's not very easy. And we came off a good 20-year period of time where record labels were willing to pay, you know, to write their contracts in such a way that, that Yellow Card, a band out of San Diego, sold a million albums and didn't make a penny off it. Yeah, yeah. Didn't make a penny. Yeah. And like I said, the problem with the record industry is not the bands. It's not the musicians. Right. It's the people running the studios. And, it's the executives who right. who and they would know, rather punch the card. You, the guy who who wrote that signed that signed that contract with them has a gold Porsche somewhere and you know a mountain of blow. Well, but also, <laughs> but also, it's the it's the um, the whole corporate line is you minimize risk and maximize profits. Yeah, yeah. Inevitably, you cut this to gain that. And the thing is, one of the first things that big corporates did when they bought out the music industry in 97 was they stopped funding studio projects. They cut their funding for future projects because, well, 75 to 90% of those records don't do anything. So we'll just hire a bunch of, you know, Disney kids come in, have songwriters, and, and market the fuck out of them. Right. And I don't blame any of those people. I actually feel sorry for a lot of them because they wound up becoming popular successful before a they knew who they really were and b then they had to try to take over their own careers i mean it was like it was like motown without the soul yeah yeah you know i mean yeah. it, it's amazing that that marvin gay wound up being the amazing you know musician and songwriter that he was in his own right after singing other people's songs for so long yeah but you know as much as i want to love justin timberlake's music with timbaland um there's kind of a, a sonic consistency that's a little drab at times. So it's like, you know, and, and it once again goes back to that struggle to find a voice. I mean, the Talking Heads just sort of made a voice that you would never... Th I mean, that yeah. music... It, 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 but the, the, the generation before them weren't making music like that. I mean, no. they kind of followed the Joy Division no. model, which is they did something that hadn't been done just because they picked up instruments and started right. playing. But... but, but the, the the way that the Beatles came along and were completely unique from anything anybody had ever heard before was very, very different than yeah. the way that the Talking Heads came along and had never done anything like that. No one had ever done anything yeah. like that before. It was, and to me, that is the alternative. That is what delineates this type of music from right. straight pop, from R&B, from rap, from... From anything else, right? And and to may, certain, really truly makes it its own. To a certain degree, I don't disagree with you, but the term itself, alternative, as used in radio, is basically a it's it's a sequestration. It's basically you're right. You're right. It's hey, white people come over here, and yeah, I get that. That's what it's become. And but for me, alternative will always be what right. it was when it was coined before MTV grabbed a hold of it right. as an umbrella for all your subgenres right. like. Po punk, post-punk, new wave, you know, um, industrial, goth, right. all of those things. Right. 
Well, I think the grandest irony of all is that, you know, uh, Kurt Cobain wound up, you know, sort of bagging on corporate rock and, and, you know, and trying to elevate all these bands that nobody knew. And Courtney was in the background poking him, going, hey, man, you ever looked at your Bauhaus record? You can't even play it anymore because the grooves are all worn out. Yeah. You know, he himself finally had to admit that Smells Like Teen Spirit, even though he was trying to write a Pixies song, what he really wrote was a Boston song. Yeah, yeah. He kind of rewrote more than a feeling. Yeah. And even he kind of went, oh, wait a minute. Although there's definitely some Pixies element. Lyrically, it's Pixies. Well, lyrically. Musically, it's it's more than a feeling. Right, because especially even in the last verse, or when you get the, the, you know, the, the guitar solo, and the guitar solo ends, and he goes into the last verse, and you hear the, the, uh, the uh, the last the single last note chord. of the guitar, the last chord slowly fade out. That's totally the final verse of more than a feeling. Yep, yep, yep. yep you know, it's yep. it's just it's a the last note of the guitar solo gets, right. just just gets vibratoed, <laughs> vibratoed and sustained for, forever. For someone in my age group who was born in '65 and listened to Top 40 radio in the '70s, yeah. as much as Kurt Cobain wanted to be inspired by the Sex Pistols, which he discovered when he was 14 and 15, he was really a child of arena rock yeah. that framed his experience and part of what is really interesting about music and the way you know people in their and their young experiences you know they may make the decision as, as teens and later teens to do a certain kind of a certain kind of genre or a certain kind of technique but their musical tastes and their musical artistry oftentimes is informed by what they listened to when they were much younger sure. isn't it funny how we as humans always ha- have a propensity toward fighting against our 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 upbringing or our our roots per se mm-hmm. we do that we do that and especially or, in subculture or trying to find a new wrinkle on it yeah yeah you know, yeah find it cuz yeah. i mean frankly there's i think some of that may even come down to biology and and uh, yeah, yeah, and genetics yeah, because yeah, yeah. There are certain things genetically that are passed down that, that are at least physical traits, if not behavioral traits. But then there's something intrinsic about a person that has nothing to do with where they grew up, which is why, you know, people out of random families will grow up, hit 15 and go, I'm wearing black. I'm listening to dark music. And oh, their parents are like, I just showed my son, my 16 year old son, a picture of me at 17 with my head shaved on one side and my ear, my cross earring. Right. And yeah, 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 yeah. And what, what's his cultural bent? He likes My Little Pony trap music and uh, doing uh, uh, speed runs online and doing a doing a, 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 a it's not podcasting it's um, live streaming. He does okay. live streams on. He's got a he's got a girlfriend in Indiana and they've never met in person. You know they have an internet relationship and it's really cute and, and she's nice and a good kid. He's a really good kid. He gets good grades and he goes to school and he uh-huh. he does his thing. He makes it. He's 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 the the child every parent dreams of. Right. And he you know but you know and he plays video games and he whatever and as long as he gets his A's he can pretty much do whatever he wants and he likes to spend all his time on the computer talking to his friends hanging out with his friends online. Playing, you know, watching speedruns of video games, and and you know, My Little Pony, and now he's getting into anime. My stepdaughter's getting him into anime. Oh, nice. Yeah, cool. So well, we're over an hour twenty. We're almost um, about ready to wrap up here. But I mean, Uh-oh. is there? Uh oh, is there anything uh, that you're that's out or or old or new or any kind of anything in media at all that you recommend that that you know maybe somebody's seen or not seen or. Anybody you've um, heard of or banned? Uh, it can be anything. Anything media actually, oriented. I've I have stumbled on to an actress named Zoe Kazan. Hmm. 
Before about a month ago, I did not even know she existed. Okay. She is actually the granddaughter of Aaliyah Kazan, the uh, oh okay yeah, the, the, the film director. director and the guy who was was a part of the uh, of what became the Actors Studio, the collective of actors yes, yes. Uh, inspired originally by uh, the Stanislavski folks. Right, um, and uh, she's like in like five or six films that have come out in the last two or three years, mostly as an actress. Although uh, Ruby Sparks is a film that she wrote um, about. A male author who's like 29 years old who has writer's block, and then he gets this inspiration to to write this relationship with this girl, Ruby Sparks, and he's like all into writing it, and then one day she shows up for real. Okay. So the premise is, guy writes a girl into reality. Now, normally you would think, oh, that's written by a guy. Weird science, right? Right. No, this was written by Zoe. Um, and she's she's got the ability to do these, you know... She can do a persona that that seems very alt girl, that seems very you sure. know you know ultra hip and and kind of quirky. Um, she's in a film called What If, uh, with uh, boy, I really should remember actors' names since I am an actor <laughs> myself. Uh, um, uh, the guy from Harry Potter. Oh, Daniel Radcliffe. Yeah, Daniel Radcliffe. Um, and she plays a very quirky character in that, and then she turns around and does something pretty damn commercial. Um, but she's really interesting. She's beautiful, but in an unusual way. She can deal with dialogue. Well, her grandfather's alive. Kazan, come on! Yeah. Um, so she's somebody that I would suggest finding any movie that's out there. And actually, there's one film that she did, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was written by Joss Whedon. And it's a story of a guy in Arizona... And a girl back east who all of a sudden discovered that they are mentally connected. They can hear each other's voices and see through each other's eyes. Literally. And um, it's sort of an interesting play on what you might call, you know, soul connection. Sure, sure, sure. Um, So that's a a great film. And... and, uh, uh, and Zoe Kazan is a very interesting actor. Very cool. Zoe Kazan, so, cool. I'll put yeah. a link up to her IMDb or something. Do it. Right and, um, my, and my IMDb is yeah, Andrew Michael Harlander, H-A-R-L-A-N-D-E-R. Um, I've spent the last year actually making short films, a documentary, a, a, a little comedic short that I directed, uh, and uh, been making most of these films with Marissa Crisofoli, who is also an actor. Cool. Um you on the Twitter? Uh, yes, DJ Drooling, D-J-D-R-E-W-L-I-N-G. I'm also the host of the On the Edge radio program on C89.5 FM in Seattle, uh, Sundays 6 p.m. Actually, Sundays 8 p.m. to 2 a.m. Um, Pacific we just, time. Pacific time. Um, you can go to c895.org slash listen. And click on the right button under streams to look for On the Edge and listen to that show. It's cool. a goth industrial show. And it's pretty good. I've been listening to some, we were listening to some clips before yeah. we started recording. Um, <clears throat> also, the On the Edge Facebook page, which uh, just say On the Edge Radio. Um, and feel free to, to ping me on, on Facebook, Andrew Terry Michael Harlander, since uh, Terry Michael was actually my <laughs> original birth name. So here's a funny story about that. So, my dad's middle name is Andrew. Um, but I grow up as Terry Michael Harlander. Terry is my name in school, and I hate it. It's awful. <laughs> oh, my God. What the hell? But when I when I started on the air uh, as a junior, I was doing news and sports, and, and uh, 
would show up to school an extra hour early and type out three news and two sports stories. And my air name reading the news was Mike Harlan. Then I started DJing the R&B rap stuff, went to Terry Michaels, got on the air in Seattle. Pretty much everybody knew me as Terry Michaels, and I hated the name. And I had a new best friend who was like, well, you should go by a different name. And I had a friend named Drew who was pretty cool, and I liked Drew Barrymore. And hmm. and so I started going by Drew, and I told so my mother that I was going by Drew. Too, yeah. and, and then my mother said, well, that was supposed to be your name. Your original first name was supposed to be Andrew, your dad's ah! middle name, except that your dad wanted something he could say easily. And I'm like, you mean you could say, like it was more difficult to say Andrew than Terry? She's like, well, no, but you know, that's what he said. Um, so, uh, so... Andrew was actually going to be my original first name, and so as as my actor name, I actually go by Andrew Michael Harlander, cool. which would have been the original name. On Facebook, it's Andrew Terry Michael Harlander because enough people know me as Terry or Terry Michaels that you know, yeah, right. let it go as that. Cool. So, cool. well, thanks for thanks for uh, coming by and I'm losing my voice. Yeah, me too. I'm, I'm getting kind of hoarse myself. So. Um, but yeah, thanks. This has been great. I love talking about showbiz and, and radio and music and everything. Cool. So uh, yeah, we'll we'll uh, we're once we start cycling through guests again, we'll definitely have you back on. And let's do it again. And if you ever have another uh, project or anything that you're working on, let me know. We can, okay. We can plug it. Okay. So I'm uh, at St. Michael on Twitter now. Uh, that's S A Y N T M Y K L. That's my personal Twitter. Uh, you can find us online as Something Two XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook and Google+, check out our blog and listen to past episodes on WordPress, email us at something2xp at gmail.com, and remember, please be kind. Oh, d- d- did I mention I'm also a tarot card reader? <laughs> <laughs> the Something Something Experience podcast was conceived and produced by Michael John Simpson. Intro music, Ways to Change Faces, and outro music, Scorpio 37, was written, produced, and provided by the talented Sebastian Ciceri. You can find us everywhere online as Something2XP. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, WordPress, and YouTube. Please follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and Google+. Email us at something2xp at gmail.com. We invite your feedback. Please be kind.